At long last, here we are at the end of the Odyssey. Um, I hope that it has been a enlightening journey. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know, like, a lot of Iliad fans were grumpy at how slow the Odyssey was turning out. I hope that it has paid off in the end. If not, here's my last chance. I will try and convince you that the Odyssey is awesome and that there's a lot going on here. Um, but first... A couple of reminders, uh, this should be, depending on when you listen to this, probably the last uh, lecture before the paper, so if you haven't written the paper at this point, be sure to get on that. Remember, it is due Friday, May 1st for all of my classes, um, so be sure to get that in on time. That is like a huge grade, one of the last huge grades in the class, and we are getting close to the end at this point. Um, we are very much hitting the wrap-up stage. Uh, there is one more lecture after this one. I'm hoping to record it today um, on Oedipus Rex. And that's pretty much it on my end besides a giant butt-ton of grading. Um, that said, there are a couple of things I want to talk about as far as like what the class is going to look like at the end of the semester now that here we are. And I realize, like, God bless all of you, every last one of you, because you have put up with this giant coronavirus nonsense and it has sucked. Like, I'm really sorry that we did not get to, you know, do our class properly and that, you know, we didn't get to actually sit and talk about this stuff, but instead have constantly had the medium of the internet between us. Um, it's not ideal. And I honestly, like, as good as it turned out, um, I wish it could have, you know, just been normal. I wish we could have just done the classroom thing. Um, I've learned a lot, honestly, like I've learned a lot about managing online classes and I suspect it'll change my attitudes in the future. Um, I think the discord thing worked out really well. Um, like it wasn't ideal again, but I think it was superior to your average zoom meeting with all the craziness. And I also really kind of liked the fact that everybody was encouraged to talk and ask a question. And, you know, the fact that we had conversations working simultaneously, like as, as weird as it was to be, you know, answering questions like five minutes late. Um, I think it was really cool that, you know, you would have a discussion about whether or not Achilles is a jackass while I'm sitting around lecturing. Um, I think that worked nicely. Uh, so I will probably do the same thing again next time I get the opportunity to teach an online class in whatever state it is. Um, but I'm also apprehensive. Like, I have no idea what things are going to look like in the, in the coming months, uh, May, June, July, much less like August, September, October, November. Um, so I hope all is well. Um, like, I know that you're probably listening to this at the end of April, so really, I, you probably know more than I do at this point about, like, what the future holds. Um, but yeah, I, I, as much as this sucked, I think it worked out for the best and I hope that you enjoyed the class all the same, but enough bureaucracy talk. Let's talk about the Odyssey. Um, so this is it. This is the end and this is our big exciting climax. This is everything that we have been working up to. Um, we left off with Odysseus testing Penelope and Penelope acting really freaking weird, um, but ultimately concluding that she was going to decide this whole business of the suitors once and for all. She's going to set out Odysseus's bow, she's going to set out the twelve axe heads, and Odysseus apparently used to, like, hang out at home and shoot an arrow through all twelve of the axe heads. Um, so... Now she's going to give the bow to the suitors, and she's going to say, all right, if you can shoot it through the axe heads, then you get to be my wife, or you get to be my husband, you get to carry me off, you get control of Ithaca, um, game, set, and match. Uh, which is a pretty interesting setup, honestly. Like, again, 
sort of tying back into this theme of memory, notice how Penelope basically sets up a test that, first of all, only Odysseus can complete, but also that is very typical of Odysseus. This is something he used to do around the house for fun. Um, it's an impressive feat of heroic accuracy and archery ability, but it also serves as this sort of like um, this sort of identifying characteristic. This is who Odysseus was. And if you want to take over Odysseus's lands and Odysseus's household and Odysseus's family, then you've got to be able to perform the same deed. It's a connection both to Penelope's past, to Odysseus's character, and to the sort of role of lordship that Odysseus held in this house. Um, so they set out the axes, and they set up the bow, um, and the challenge begins. And you'll notice the first person who takes a shot at it is actually Telemachus. Um, and Telemachus, weirdly, is the only person who can actually string the bow. Like, this, the whole challenge becomes this giant farce, because, like, the whole challenge is, okay, shoot the arrow through the axe heads, which is, you know, a really impressive feat all by itself, like, that, that requires some really, really strong shooting. Um, but at the same time, like, they can't even string the bow. The bow is huge. Um, it's apparently, like, really, really taut, really, really strong, and none of the suitors are apparently strong enough to do it. Um, Telemachus himself, like, he tries three times and fails, but he's getting closer and closer each time until the fourth time, and then Odysseus is like, uh, don't do that, because, you know, I, the, the whole plan here is to just, like, start shooting people. Um, if Telemachus manages to string the bow, that's going to ruin everything. But Telemachus can do it. Um, and it's significant that Telemachus can do it because, again, it indicates to us that Telemachus is the proper inheritor of Odysseus's household, of Odysseus's lordship. Remember, back in the beginning, we talked about Telemachus has become a man. Like, Athena makes him into a man, rather surprisingly. Like, up until this point, he has been zero threat to the suitors. They have not taken him seriously. All of a sudden, he's commanding the household. He's telling Penelope to go upstairs. Like, he's running the show now. And uh, several times it's commented on here in Book 21 and elsewhere. Like, Penelope even remarks to Odysseus after everything is, you know, set up and Odysseus's identity has been revealed that Telemachus has become a man now. Um, like, for a while he wasn't. He didn't have any access to the, to the ladies, for example. But now Telemachus is coming into his own. He could take over the household. Um, but this is not the time, because Odysseus just came home. It's also significant that the bow itself has a history and is connected to this theme of memory as well. Um, so notice, like, the whole start of Odyssey 21 is basically yet another long description of a memory, this time about the bow. Um, so we get on page 423, this is around line 10. There lay the curved bow and the quiver still loaded with arrows, gifts which a friend of Odysseus had given him when they met in Lacedaemon long ago. This was Iphitus, Eurytus's son, a godlike man. They had met in Messene, in the house of Ortilochus. Odysseus had come to collect a debt the Messenians owed him. Three hundred sheep they had taken from Ithaca in a sea raid, and the shepherds with them. Odysseus had come to get them back, a long journey for a young man sent by his father and elders. Iphitus had come to search for twelve mares he had lost, along with the mules they were nursing. These mares turned out to be the death of Iphitus when he came to the house of Heracles, Zeus's tough-hearted son, who killed him, guessed though he was, without any regard for the gods' wrath or the table they had shared, killed the man and kept the strong-hoofed mares. Notice how we're already wrapping multiple stories into stories again. Like, the bow is apparently a gift of Iphitus, 
to Odysseus and they met while they were like both on separate journeys like Odysseus was trying to recover his sheep and Iphitus was trying to recover his mares um but then Iphitus then like goes to Heracles and Heracles kills him P.S. out of an act of bad hospitality um but then when uh while looking for these mares line 30 Iphitus met Odysseus and gave him the bow, which old Eurydice had carried and left to his son. Odysseus gave him a sword and spear to mark the beginning of their friendship. Um, but before they had a chance to entertain each other, Zeus's son killed Iphitus, son of Eurytus, a man like the gods. Um, so Odysseus has this relationship with his friend Iphitus. Iphitus gets killed by Her Heracles, but not before Iphitus gives Odysseus this bow. Um, and the bow, Odysseus leaves at home. He doesn't bring it to Troy. It's a memento. It serves more as a memory, as a token of that friendship, than it does as an instrument of warfare, as much as Odysseus is going to use it like one. Um, so the bow, too, is connected to this long history of Odysseus's, his relationships, his friendships, um, a happier past, so to speak, even though Iphitus, like, gets murdered by Heracles, which kind of sucks. Um... Now, Penelope brings out the bow, and again, as I stressed, no one can string it. Only Telemachus even gets close, and he breaks off because he knows that Odysseus, like, needs him to fail in order to, you know, complete his homecoming. So, notice, again, that line on 125. He went and took his stance on the threshold, Telemachus, I mean, and began to try the bow. Three times he made it quiver as he strained to string it, and three times he eased off, although in his heart he yearned to draw that bow and shoot an arrow through the iron axe heads. And on his fourth try, he would have succeeded in muscling the string onto its notch, but Odysseus reined him in, signaling him to stop with an upward nod. Telemachus gets that close... And then backs off. And notice he is intentionally backing off. He could totally complete this feat, or at least come really, really close to it. Um, by contrast, notice that the suitors just fail so badly. Um, like, it's actually sneaky how Antinous deals with this. Because literally all the suitors are sort of like trying to string it. We start with with the, the soothsayer, the seer. Um, Laodes on around line 155 he, he tried to bend the bow and string it but his tender unworn hands gave out and he said for all the suitors to hear friends I'm not the man to string this bow someone else can take it I foresee it will rob many a young hero of the breath of life and that will be just as well since it is far better to die than live on and fall short of the goal we gather here for with high hopes day after day you might hope in your heart, you might yearn to marry Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, but after you've tried this bow and seen what it's like, go woo some other Achaean women and try to win her with your gifts. And Penelope should just marry the highest bidder, the man who is fated to be her husband. Um, notice, the soothsayer, A, can't string the bow, and also acknowledges none of you are going to string the bow either. Like, this is, this is a fool's journey. It would require way more strength than anyone here has. Give up now. And what's worse, he predicts that it's going to rob a bunch of young heroes of their lives. It's going to kill a bunch of people. Um, so he says that Penelope should just marry the highest bidder, which is kind of appropriate because Odysseus really is the highest bidder here. Um, but notice the suitors respond by saying that this is ridiculous. Um, they say around line 180, the truth is your mother didn't bear a son strong enough to shoot arrows from bows, but there are others who will string it soon enough. 
Um, so they all have a go at it. Like, they all take their shot. They all try and string the bow, and they all fail. And they get real creative. Like, they warm the bow up to make it more pliant. They rub it with grease to make it easier to string. Um, nothing. Like, none of them get anywhere close. Um, so notice, like, the, the person who gets the closest is probably Yuri Makis, um, around line 250. Eurymachus was turning the bow over and over in his hands, warming it on this side and that by the fire, but even so, he was unable to string it. His pride hurt, shoulders sagging, he groaned and then swore. Damn it, it's not just myself I'm sorry for, but for all of us, and not for the marriage either. That hurts, but there are plenty of other women, some here in Ithaca, some in other cities. No, it's that we fall so short of Odysseus's godlike strength. We can't even string his bow. We'll be laughed at for generations to come. Notice the emphasis here. First off, Eurymachus is just, like, totally unable to do it, but he also stresses um, every one of the suitors has gone at this point except Antinous, and Antinous gets out of it. Um, but they also don't even come close to stringing the bow. Like, forget the feet where he shoots the arrow through the axes. Like, not even a thing that's, that's possible because they can't even get the bow strung. They, as he stresses... They fall so short of Odysseus's strength that they can't even string his bow. They can't even do the action that he would have done without thinking. Um, it is that difficult. Remember Achilles' spear and how Patroclus can't carry Achilles' spear? Like, Peleus gave it to Achilles and it's, like, apparently huge and really powerful and only Achilles can, Achilles can wield it? Well, here we have the same thing. Odysseus has this bow given to him by a friend with this history attached to it, and literally none of the new generation can string it with the exception of Odysseus's own son, who struggles with it. Um... On the one hand, this should definitely be an indication of how unworthy the suitors are. That they, you know, came and ate all of Odysseus's food and courted Odysseus's wife, and really they, they're complete crap by comparison to what Odysseus is capable of. But on the other hand, remember, too, that this kind of links back to Hesiod's sort of five races. Um, the heroic age is ending, and Homer is kind of stressing here that Odysseus, Odysseus is a relic of a former time. Um, all of these suitors are nowhere near as strong as Odysseus, and all of the people listening to this poem are nowhere near as strong as the suitors. Every generation fails. Every generation is weaker than the generation that came before. And this is stressed throughout both of these poems. Um, we didn't read a whole lot of the Iliad's passages from Nestor, who is like the old, old... Um, warrior who is like here the relic of a former generation but Nestor also stresses this like Nestor lived when Theseus was alive and when Heracles was alive and when all of the other greater heroes were alive and Nestor keeps stressing like you guys Agamemnon and Ajax and Odysseus and even Achilles are nowhere near as powerful as Theseus and Perseus and Heracles um, the emphasis is always that the next generation is always going to be inferior to the one that came before um, the suitors can't even string odysseus's bow odysseus would not even have been able to wield heracles's club um, every generation is so much more powerful like an order of magnitude greater um, so that like the suitors are just pathetic by comparison to Odysseus and the people listening to this song are pathetic by comparison to Odysseus and to Heracles and even to the suitors um, it's not even a competition um, it's fate 
for man to degenerate, for humans to gradually grow less and less worthy of honor and glory. Um, now, Odysseus... Odysseus, of course, manages to string the bow, and everything starts, you know, going crazy. But before we get to that, I want to look specifically at Antinous and the fact that he, again, does this dick move to get out of the situation. So, remember, Penelope made this arrangement. Whoever gets to string the bow marries me. Anyone who fails is now disqualified and will not marry Penelope. So, as a result, Antinous sneaks out. Like, he, he finds a loophole. After Eurymachus admits that nobody can string the bow, Antinous responds, that'll never happen, Eurymachus, and you know it. Now look, today is a holiday throughout the land, a sacred feast in honor of Apollo, the archer god. How convenient that we have a bow challenge on the Apollo festival. This is no time to be bending bows. What? Of course it's a time to be bending bows. It's the archer god who you're supposed to be celebrating. Bending a bow is the best way to celebrate him. So again, Antinous making up bullshit all the time. So just set it quietly aside for now. As for the axes, why don't we leave them just as they are? No one is going to come into Odysseus's hall and steal those axes. Now let's have the cupbearer start us off so we can forget about the bow and pour libations. Come along, we'll have Melanthius bring along the best she-goats in all the herds so we can lay prime thigh pieces on the altar of Apollo, the archer god, and then finish this business with the bow. Antinous's proposal carried the day. The heralds poured water over everyone's heads, and boys filled the mixing bowls up to the brim and served out the wine, first pouring a few drops into each cup for libation. When they had poured out their libations and drunk as much as they wanted, Odysseus spoke among them, his heart full of cunning, and he manages to get his hands on the bow sneakily. But notice how Antinous sidesteps the issue, uses his same bullshit logic to justify it. Oh, we have to go worship Apollo, the archer god, by not using a bow. Um, and then proceeds to turn around into eating up more of Odysseus's food and supplies. Let's pour libations to the gods. Let's drink up Odysseus's booze in honor of Apollo. Let's sacrifice these goats in honor of Apollo and eat their succulent thighs. Like... He, and in the process, he ducks his own responsibility. He doesn't have to shoot the bow. Literally, all the other suitors have fired it at this point, and Antinous is like, mm, I don't really feel all that confident about my ability to string this bow, so let's just go have some partying and forget about this bow challenge. Maybe if we wait long enough, it'll blow over, and Penelope will have to think of something else to get rid of us. Um, let's ignore this. Let's sidestep this. Um, and of course, Odysseus is not willing to do that. Um, so Odysseus works it out with Eumaeus, that noble swineherd, um, to get him the bow, since he knows that Antinous isn't going to let him try and fire it. Um, so he first, he makes this arrangement with both Eumaeus, the swineherd, and apparently the cattle herd. Remember, Melanthius is the goat herd and he sucks. Um, but Odysseus finds that the two of these, these two servants are super loyal, and so they will fight with him. Um, so... The swineherd steals the bow, gets it to Odysseus, and Odysseus effortlessly strings it, as we would expect. Like, the, the suitors actually make fun of him initially, 
um, when you know the bow gets to him, they're like, "Oh, this beggar! Yeah, he was must be a real connoisseur in bows." Um, but in fact, like Odysseus is checking the bow to see that it hasn't been harmed in his absence. Um, line 420, he was handling the bow, turning it over and over and testing its flex to make sure that worms had not eaten the horn in its master's absence. The suitors glanced at each other and started to make sarcastic remarks. Ha! A real connoisseur, an expert in bows. He must have one just like it in a case at home. So, again, Odysseus, the beggar, the tramp, um, is ridiculous as he is trying to string this bow the suitors mock him they make fun of him uh penelope gives him the go-ahead like telemachus is the one who says you know by all means let him try it and penelope agrees um eurymachus men who gobble up the house of a prince cannot expect to have a good reputation anywhere so there isn't any point in bringing up honor this stranger is a very well-built man and says he is the son of a noble father so give him the bow and let us see what happens now, her arrangement isn't that she's going to marry Odysseus. Notice she changes it. Here is my promise to all of you, she says, line 355. If Apollo gives the man the glory and he strings the bow, I will clothe him in a fine cloak and tunic and give him a javelin to ward off dogs and men and a double-edged sword and sandals for his feet, and I will give him passage to wherever his heart desires. I.e., she'll move him along. Um, he will be able to go anywhere he wants. She'll grant him passage to any of the neighboring islands, um, as well as like armaments, javelins, a good, a good sandals and a good cloak. Um, she will reward him generously, but she won't marry him because he's not like well-born or at least not in a good situation. Uh, he is disqualified by his circumstances. Um, but the suitors don't want him to have the bow anyway because they're worried that he could, in fact, string it. How embarrassing would it be for them? All these, you know, young, handsome, supposedly powerful suitors sitting around guzzling all of Odysseus's wine. They all are presented with this challenge, fire this arrow through the axe heads. They can't even string the bow. But then this beggar shows up and he strings the bow. And remember, they all know that he's really strong. He fought Iris, that other beggar. And like everybody was shocked at how powerful, how well built Odysseus was. So there is like this suspicion that they have that maybe he could actually pull it off. Um, and they're, they don't want to get shamed by this. But of course, line 430, while Odysseus, deep in thought, was looking over his bow, and then effortlessly, like a musician stretching a string over a new peg on his lyre and making the twisted sheep gut fast at either end, Odysseus strung the great bow. Lifting it up, he plucked the string, and it sang beautifully under his touch with a note like a swallow's. This is a work of art. Odysseus does not even try. He effortlessly strings the bow. The bow is familiar in his hands. He plucks the string like a lyre. It is his instrument. Um, the comparison is very clear. As the lyre to the musician, so the bow to Odysseus. He is an artist of archery. Um, now... Obviously, Odysseus takes the one arrow and then it goes through all 12 axe heads. Again, no problem. He not only manages to string the bow, but complete the challenge that Penelope set before him. Of course he did. This is what he used to do for fun. He's got the muscle memory and everything. And then he proceeds to 
start shooting people. Like, Telemachus grabs his sword, Odysseus has his bow, and Odysseus rips off his rags and says, Now that we've separated the men from the boys, I'll see if I can hit a mark that no man has ever hit. Apollo, grant me glory. And he shoots Antinous through the throat. Um, like, it is almost anticlimactic how this works. Like Antinous is the asshole who has been like the ringleader of the suitors this entire time. And Odysseus literally strings the bow, fires the arrow through the ax heads, turns around, shoots Antinous through the throat and he's dead, like out. Antinous is gone. And everyone panics. Um, bloodshed was the farthest thing from his mind. They were at a banquet. Who would think that one man, however strong, would take them all on and so ensure his own death? Odysseus took dead aim at Antinous's throat and shot, and the arrow punched all the way through the soft neck tissue. Antinous fell to one side. The cup dropped from his hands, and a jet of dark blood spurted from his nostrils. He kicked the table as he went down, spilling the food on the floor, and the bread and roast meat were fouled in the dust." The crowd burst into an uproar when they saw Antinous go down. They jumped from their seats and ran in a panic through the hall, scanning the walls for weapons, a spear, a shield, but there were none to be had. Remembered, part of the plan was for Telemachus to remove all the weapons. So now we have all these suitors crowded around Odysseus and Telemachus, both of whom are well armed. Telemachus has his sword, Odysseus has his bow, and they just start picking them off. Like, it's, it's not even subtle. Um, they threaten Odysseus and Odysseus responds, you dogs, you thought I would never come home from Troy. So you wasted my house, forced the women to sleep with you. And while I was still alive, you courted my wife without any fear of the gods in high heaven or of any retribution from the world of men. Now the net has been drawn tight around you. Um, now Eurymachus actually tries to parley, which, you know, kind of makes sense. They're in a really bad situation. Like there are a hundred of them, so they could theoretically take two dudes with a bow and a sword respectively um but even so they don't want to you know if they bum rush odysseus a hundred strong plenty of them are gonna die like dozens at best and this is odysseus who has already proven that he is much stronger than originally anticipated so eurymachus says if you are really odysseus of ithaca then what you say is just the citizens have done many foolish things in this house and many in the fields, but the man to blame lies here dead, Antinous. He started it all, not so much because he wanted a marriage or needed one, but for another purpose, which Zeus did not fulfill. He wanted to be king in Ithaca and to kill your son in ambush. Now he's been killed and he deserved it. But spare your people. We will pay you back for all we have eaten and drunk in your house. We will make a collection. Each man will put in the worth of 20 oxen. We will make restitution and bronze and gold until your heart is soothed. Until then, no one could blame you for being angry. Notice Eurymachus turns around and actually makes a pretty decent offer. Like, oh, yep, we totally screwed up. But it was mostly Antinous's fault. He was the ringleader. We all acknowledge this. Most of the suitors are citizens of Ithaca. These are actually people who Odysseus is sworn to protect. They're the sons of his liege lords. Um, spare your people, he says. Um, and we will pay you back. We will give you 20 oxen each. You will be more than recompensed for what has happened here. Um, we will make it up make it up to you for sure we will go back and everything can be the way it was and odysseus fixed him with a stare and said eurymachus not even if all of you gave me your entire family fortunes all that you have and ever will have would i stay my hands from killing you courted my wife and you will pay in full your only choice now is to fight like men or run for it who knows one or two of you might live to see another day but i doubt it
which is like the coldest response. Odysseus is not buying it. I don't care how many oxen you give me, he says. You tried to sleep with my wife, and now I'm going to end every last one of you. So Eurymachus says, all right, I guess we're going to go with the bum-rushing strategy. Like, we're going to use the tables as shields, draw your swords, which you've got on you. We'll try and do this. But notice the Telemachus grabs the grabs the spears and the other weapons and now now it's an actual fight um so they start systematically exterminating the suitors but notice a couple of the important beats here especially notice melanthius's role um so melanthius apparently is working for the suitors he goes into the storeroom where telemachus has stashed all the weapons and he starts bringing out a, an armload of weapons for the suitors so now some of the suitors are armed um, not all of them. When Melanthius goes back, Odysseus anticipates him, sends Eumaeus, and Eumaeus, like, hogties um, Melanthius in the storeroom and locks the doors so nobody can get in. Um, at which point, like, Telemachus and Odysseus are, like, fighting back-to-back -back with Eumaeus and the cattle herd, and they just literally wipe the floor with the suitors. It's not even a fair fight. Um, at one point, Athena shows up, dressed up as mentor. She is disguised as Odysseus's teacher, his trainer. Um, this is where we actually get the word mentor. Um, the idea is a mentor is a person who, like, raises you, who is your your obvious role model, who teaches you important things about life, um, about, like, warfare in Greek culture, um, but just, like, to be a person entirely. Um, your mentor at a job is someone who teaches you how to do it, how to do the job, but it's frequently bigger than that. Like, it's more a matter of, like, life skills across the board. Um, so for Athena to disguise herself as mentor in this situation actually sort of suggests that Athena is the one who taught Odysseus everything that he knew. Um, now, admittedly, when it's mentor, when she shows up as mentor, Odysseus suspects that it's Athena. Like, he knew he was going to get divine protection on this one. Athena promised earlier. Um, he knows he's got her on his side. Um, the suitors all think that it's mentor and they're trying to, like, buy him off. And Athena, of course, is just pissed that they're even going to try this. Um, so between Athena as mentor, Odysseus, Telemachus, now fully a man, Eumaeus and the cattle herd, the two loyal servants, they completely wreck the suitors. The closest the suitors ever get, um, is they like nick Telemachus's wrist. Um, and that's because Athena is deliberately not giving their, her full power. Um, like you'll notice, um, Line 250, Athena spoke these words, but she did not yet give Odysseus the strength to turn the tide. She was still testing him and his glorious son to see what they were made of. Um, so when Telemachus actually gets wounded, line 295, Amphimedon's spear grazed Telemachus's wrist, breaking the skin, and Satipus's spear clipped Eumaeus's shoulder as it sailed over his shield and kept on going until it hit the ground. Um, that's when Athena just, like, lets loose and just, they systematically destroy everybody. Um, only then did Athena hold up her overpowering Aegis, line 315, from her high perch, and the minds of the suitors shriveled with fear, and they fled through the hall like a herd of cattle that an iridescent gadfly goads along on a warm spring afternoon. Athena doesn't even give her full strength. She's still testing Odysseus. She's still testing Telemachus. And it's obvious that they can kind of handle it. Like, the closest the suitors get is they wound them just a little bit. Um, but they're also systematically wiping the suitors out, like, three, four at a time. Um, it's not a contest. Um, like, the 
greatest danger here is the same one that Hector faced when he faced Achilles. Once you throw your spear, your spear is gone. So they throw the spear at the suitors, and the spear is now in the hands of the suitors, and this is when Athena uses her Aegis to scare them all off, to turn the tide again. Um, but still, even so, like, it's not a fair fight. Odysseus and Telemachus really are just creaming the suitors, um, as many of them though there are. Um, now, once they flee and Odysseus, like, picks them off, it, it's just ugly. Um, you'll notice line, right around line 328, I guess, Odysseus and his cohorts were clubbing the suitors right and left all through the hall. Horrible groans rose from their lips as their heads were smashed in and the floor of the great hall smoked with blood. Um, again, like a hundred people have just been murdered in this hall. It's a big hall, but it's still, like, they gotta be ankle deep at this point. It's a giant mess. Um... And at this point, we start getting people coming out of the woodwork and begging for mercy. Um, notice that there are three people who kind of get clemency in this situation, or at least ask for it. Um, first, we get Laodes. Remember the soothsayer, the one who literally just predicted that the bow was going to claim a bunch of young heroes' lives, and the suitors were, like, bawling him down. Laodes runs up and begs Odysseus for his life. By your knees, Odysseus, respect me and pity me. I swear I have never said or done anything wrong to any woman in your house. I tried to stop the suitors when they did such things, but they wouldn't listen, wouldn't keep their hands clean. And now they've paid a cruel price for their sins. And I, their soothsayer, who have done no wrong, will be laid low with them. That's the gratitude I get. But Odysseus scowled down at the man and said, If you really are their soothsayer, as you boast you are, how many times must you have prayed in the halls that my sweet homecoming would never come, and that you would be the one my wife would go off with and bear children to? You're a dead man. And he kills it. Um, Laodes, now, we should be a little cautious about this. Like, this should raise some red flags. As a rule, you don't go around killing soothsayers, priests, and spears, because the or seers, because the chances are they're sacred to some god, and you're likely to piss them off. But also notice that this kind of ties into what Odysseus has been Odysseus's relationship with the gods this entire time. Remember, Odysseus has been routinely suspicious of the gods since we've met him at the beginning of this text. Remember again the response that he has when like the random water nymph gives him the veil and he's like, oh crap, not another supernatural being here to screw up my life. Remember when Athena tells him, you know, Penelope is trustworthy. Here are the trustworthy members of your household. And Odysseus is like, mm, still going to test them. Not trusting Athena. Not sure what the deal is. Here we see it again. As much as Odysseus trusts Athena when Athena is mentor empowering him, here we have a soothsayer a servant of the gods coming up to Odysseus and saying, dude, I serve the gods, not the suitors. I didn't do anything wrong. And Odysseus is like, screw you. You've been praying against me this whole time. You were every bit as much a part of the problem as these suitors. Maybe you didn't sleep with the maids. Maybe you didn't carve up the, the goats. Maybe you didn't take advantage of my hospitality the way that they did. Maybe you didn't even seek to sleep with my wife. Although he, you know, pretty directly says, yeah, you were hoping secretly that you, that she would go off with you. It doesn't matter. If anything, the gods have been the major problem in Odysseus's life this whole time. And anyone who serves the gods, who helped them with their grudge against Odysseus, they deserve to die, if anything, more than the suitors. So he kills Laodes, no question. But he spares the bard. 
Notice line 353. All this while the bard Femius was busy trying not to be killed. This man, Terpes' son, sang for the suitors under compulsion. He stood now with his pure-toned lyre near the high back door, trying to decide whether he should slip out from the hall and crouch at the altar of Zeus of the courtyard, the great altar on which Laertes and Odysseus had burned many an ox's thigh, or whether he should rush forward and supplicate Odysseus by his knees. Better to fall at the man's knees, he thought. So he laid the hollow lyre on the ground between the wine bowl and the silver-studded chair and ran up to Odysseus and clasped his knees. His words flew up to Odysseus like birds. By your knees, Odysseus, respect me and pity me. You will regret it someday if you kill a bard me who sings for gods and men i am self-taught and a god has planted in my heart all sorts of songs and stories and i can sing to you as to a god so don't be too eager to slit my throat telemachus will tell you that i didn't come to your house by choice to entertain the suitors at their feasts there were too many of them they made me come and telemachus backs this up he's innocent don't kill him and let's spare the herald medon who used to take care of me when i was a child if philoetius hasn't already killed him or the swineherd or if he didn't run into you as you were charging through the house so they spare the bard which again remember this entire poem has been pro bard from the very beginning you know homer is certainly like inserting this don't kill your bards line for his own protection on some level but notice notice too again the difference in the relationships between laodes the soothsayer and femius the bard because they're both paralleled here like they're a deliberate connection is drawn between these two figures laodes on the one hand directly serves the gods directly prays to the gods directly prophesies for the gods and he is odysseus's enemy his relationship to the gods is one that is that has sides um it is biased it is an attack on odysseus his service to the gods made odysseus's life miserable by contrast, Femius, who also serves the gods, notice his emphasis there. A god planted the song in my heart, but he also sings to gods and men. And he will sing to Odysseus as to a god. Femius serves the gods and goddesses in a way that is neutral. It is not in a way that destroys anyone. It can't hurt people. Art, being a bard, singing, telling stories, this is not something that is destructive in any way. Odysseus was not harmed by Femius singing songs to the suitors. And notice that Telemachus stresses it is under compulsion. I'm sure that's part of the reason why Odysseus ultimately decides to spare him. But even so, notice, like, there is this weird and interesting connection in Greek culture between art on the one hand and faith and religion on the other. To do art is to practice religion for the Greeks. When you sing the song of Odysseus, you are, at least in part, celebrating the gods. You are celebrating Athena especially, but also Zeus, who, you know, is doing all the right things. In the same way, in the Iliad, you celebrate all the gods who participate in the Iliad, Apollo and Ares and Athena and Aphrodite, Hera, Zeus, Poseidon, the whole, the whole list. Um, you recognize and respect them. Telling these stories is how you worship and re revere the gods. And it's the same thing in classical Athenian culture as well. Like all those plays are written to worship Dionysus um, or some of the other gods for that matter later on in the classical career. Um, this is how you worship, but it's also just worship. It's not supplication. It's not asking the gods to do something for you. Um, Laodes asked the gods to do something for the suitors and that 
earns him death at Odysseus's hand because he was screwing over Odysseus the whole time. Themius, the bard, and all the bards we've run into in the course of this story have done nothing to Odysseus. As we've stressed, as both Telemachus and Odysseus have said, there's nothing more pleasant than to listen to a bard. Um, they just bring happiness. They just bring joy. They celebrate the gods, they worship the gods, they make your relationship with the gods better, but they also do so without antagonizing anyone, without hurting anyone, without destroying the lives of anyone. And as much as this, again, is like Homer definitely doing self-advertising, you know, make sure to tip your local bard, um, I suspect that this really does represent an honest distinction among the Greeks. Um, they have a greater respect for bards than they do for priests at this point in time. Um, because, again, priests have an agenda. Bards do not. Art is neutral, while prayer is itself pointed, destructive, potentially at least. Um, so they spare the bard, they spare the herald, as Telemachus re uh, requests. But I also want to focus on the heavy-duty punishments. Um, you'll notice it gets pretty vicious by the end of Book 22. Um, Odysseus calls on Eurycleia, and you'll remember Eurycleia promised Odysseus that when the time came, she was going to reveal all the maids who were unfaithful to Odysseus, who were sleeping with the suitors. This is the time. So Odysseus calls for Eurycleia, um, and Eurycleia responds... You know, there were these 12 women. They were the ones who were irresponsible. They were the ones who were sleeping with the with the suitors. Um, so, um, yeah, she says, this is line 444. Yes, indeed, child, I will tell you all. There are 50 women in your house, servants we have taught to do their work, to card wool and bear all the drudgery. Of these, 12 have shamed this house and respect neither me nor Penelope herself. Telemachus has only now become a man and his mother was not allowed to has not allowed him to direct the women's servants. Um, so they get the women. While the old woman went out through the hall to tell the women the news and to summon twelve, Odysseus called Telemachus and the two herdsmen and spoke to them words fletched like arrows. Start carrying out the bodies and have the women help you. Then sponge down all of the beautiful tables and chairs. When you have set the whole house in order, take the women outside between the roundhouse and the courtyard fence. Slash them with swords until they have forgotten their secret lovemaking with the suitors. Then finish them off. So notice the women get tortured and killed. And it is stressed that it is in that order. Slash them with swords until they have forgotten their secret lovemaking, then finish them off. Two separate phases. They will get slashed, and then they will get killed. Um, this is meant to be an example on some level. Um, notice that that's not even all that bad compared to what happens to Melanthius, though. Remember Melanthius the goat herd who fetched weapons for the suitors, who insulted Odysseus in town, and continued to insult Odysseus as a beggar while the feast was going on? Melanthius who snuck into the storeroom, who Eumaeus who hogtied? Well, Melanthius gets truly special treatment. Um, then they brought Melanthius outside, and in their fury they sliced off his nose and ears with cold bronze, and pulled his genitals out by the root, raw meat for the dogs, and chopped off his hands and feet. This done, they washed their own hands and feet, and went back into the master's great hall. 
Notice they leave Melanthius alive, but profoundly maimed. Um, like, this is the most hideous um, treatment of any of the servants, and that's because his treachery is the greatest. Uh, if Eumaeus is, like, the shining example um, in all of Homeric poetry of how a good servant behaves, you, my swineherd, you, Eumaeus, who gets the same treatment as Patroclus in the Odyssey, insofar as, like, Homer addresses him directly, if Eumaeus is the most admirable character in the whole poem, Melanthius is the mirror image, the most vile, the most villainous. And so he receives the most vicious punishment. Um, it is just, as far as the Greeks are concerned. Um, Melanthius not only was disloyal, but he was dis actively disloyal and actively prevented his, his proper uh, ruler, his pop proper lord, from taking up his position. Um, this is only fair. Like, as vicious as this seems, as horrible as this treatment seems, this, for the Greeks, would have been considered appropriate, just treatment. This is like the Disney villain who falls off the roof of, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral or Big Ben or whatever. Um, you expect, morally, for the villain to get their just treatment. Um, you would be offended if they didn't. Um, this is Melanthius's proper end. Uh, he, you know, is tortured and left to miserably, like, wind out his existence. Um... So that very much closes, like, the action here. At long last, after all these travels, we've been, you know, we've been dealing with the suitors since book one. We've known that they were a problem. Now Odysseus has finally dealt with them. But we're not done yet. Um, there are two things that Odysseus needs to address before he can, like, properly get on with his story and call this chapter of his life closed. He has to deal with Penelope and he has to deal with Laertes. Um... So the Odyssey 23 is all about Odysseus and Penelope. And this is where I want to focus most of the lecture, honestly. Like, this is the big scene. The scene that we have been waiting for. Um, the scene that has been sort of teased to us thematically for a long time. Like, as much as we know that Penelope has been loyal, that she has been going way out of her way to make sure that Odysseus uh, is, like, respected... Um, as much as she is trying to keep the fire of Odysseus's rule alive, remember, like, even Athena has told us, has told Odysseus, for that matter, that she is totally trustworthy. Um, we have also heard from Agamemnon that we're not, still not going to trust her. Um, Agamemnon's wife murdered him, so Odysseus has to test Penelope one last time. Um, but even more importantly, as much as Penelope needs to be tested, like, that kind of had happened earlier when Odysseus had had her conversation, or had his conversation with her. If anything, Odyssey 23 is Penelope testing Odysseus. And I know that I suggested that Penelope was doing that earlier as well. Like, I don't even know whether or not Penelope knew that Odysseus was actually there. It's certainly an interesting reading on the text, and it, there's enough in Homer's Odyssey to sort of, like, back that reading up, to sort of let that have depth to it. Um, but notice, this is where it's explicit 
that Penelope is shrewdly testing Odysseus as much as Odysseus has tested her and everyone else in the household. Um, so let's walk through this. Um, first, Eurycleia goes back upstairs after, you know, all of the cleanup and the torture and all the normal stuff that apparently needs to be done um, after you murder all of the suitors in your household. Um, she goes up and tells Penelope that Odysseus is home. Wake up, dear child, so you can see for yourself what you have yearned for day in and day out. Odysseus has come home after all this time and has killed those men who tried to marry you and who ravaged your house and bullied your son. Notice, this is it. This is the big announcement. Penelope's waiting is over. She made the right call. Fighting off the suitors has yielded, finally, her husband coming back to her. But notice Penelope's response, which we should expect at this point. Because again, Penelope has insisted, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that Odysseus is dead. Remember the dream? Some dreams come through the gate of horns, some through the gate of ivory. I know this one is a lie, that Odysseus is coming home and is going to kill all the suitors. Um, she insists, even when Odysseus, as the beggar, is telling her, Oh no, I saw Odysseus. He's on his way home. Gotta be here in like month, two months at the most. And she's like, nope, he's dead. Penelope responds, Dear nurse, the gods have driven you crazy. The gods can make even the wise mad, just as they often make the foolish wise. Now they have wrecked your usually sound mind. Why do you mock me and my sorrowful heart, waking me from sleep to tell me this nonsense, and such a sweet sleep? It sealed my eyelids. I haven't slept like that since the day Odysseus left for Ilion, that accursed city. Now go back down to the hall. If any of the others had told me this and waken me from sleep, I would have sent her back with something to be sorry about. You can thank your old age for this at least. Notice Penelope went to sleep earlier, back in book 21, I believe. Um, when, the, when the big challenge is going on, Penelope has this line. She tells Odysseus that, yes, he can take the challenge. He can try and string the bow. If, if he does, great. She'll, like, clothe him and give him weapons and great. Um, but then, again, Telemachus dismisses her. Um, if you notice line 374 in book 21, go to your rooms, mother, and take care of your work, spinning and weaving, and have the maids do theirs. This bow is men's business and my business especially, since I am the master of this house. Um... This is a direct parallel to book one. Remember, the same exact thing happened. Penelope came down the stairs, was complaining about the bard singing this song that really, like, emotionally affected her. She was really upset because, again, she's still missing Odysseus. And Telemachus tells her, go to your room. Take care of woman's work because I am the master of the house. And she does. And Athena puts her to sleep. The same thing happens here. Telemachus asserts he is the master of the house. He sends her upstairs and she goes to sleep. Athena casts sleep on her eyelids and she is sleeping soundly. Like, remember, an entire butchering is occurring in the great room in another part of the house. Like, a hundred people die. Screams, violence, shouting, like, you name it. The worst sounds you can imagine. And Penelope just sleeps through the whole thing because Athena is, like, magically uh, entrancing her. And notice she stresses, it's the best sleep I've had since Odysseus left for Ilion. Um, this is the most relaxed, the most rested she's been. In 30 years, in all likelihood. Or pretty darn close to it. Um, so, on the one hand, the suggestion here is that Athena is like preparing her. Giving her rest because she can finally deserve it. Odysseus is taking matters in hand again. On the other hand... She stresses she wishes she were back asleep. 
you know, it's almost like she has this pleasant dream of Odysseus being home that she is kind of waking up into, so to speak. Um, but she chides Eurycleia for waking her. I would have preferred to be asleep. It's ridiculous. What? It's absurd to think that Odysseus has come home and killed all these suitors. Um, but Eurycleia insists, not mocking you, not insane. Odysseus is the beggar. I knew it beforehand. Telemachus is known all along. Um, now, Penelope, this is the first time that she actually believes it. And if there is an argument to be made against the prospect that she actually knows that Odysseus is home in the earlier section, back in book 19 or 18, um, this is this is where. Um, because it says, line 32, Penelope felt a sudden pang of joy. She leapt from her bed and flung her arms around the old woman, and with tears in her eyes she said to her, Dear nurse, if it is true, if he really has come back to the house, tell me how he laid his hands on the shameless suitors, one man alone against all of that mob. Now, you could make... Again, like, the interpretation is still open. Penelope first admits her joy here. This is the first time we see it. Like, our narrator gives it to us straight. Penelope fell a sudden pang of joy. Could be because, you know, she's just happy that Odysseus is home. This is the first time she's realized it. Could be that Odysseus is actually won, and that's what she was waiting for. It could be that Penelope was treading lightly because she couldn't get her hopes up if in fact it was Odysseus who was home because Odysseus still had a hundred and some suitors to contend with. It didn't matter that Odysseus was home. He, she, she and he were still in grave danger. But now that danger is overcome. So notice that her response is, how did he beat all of that mob? How did he lay hands on the shameless suitors, one man alone against all the mob? And Eurycleia tells her, like, the place is covered in blood. I didn't see it personally. That's kind of not my thing. But I did go into the room and watch Odysseus standing, like, knee-deep in dead people. So, obviously, it worked out. Um, now, Penelope's response to Eurycleia's story is, again, denial. Despite the pang of joy that she felt just a moment ago, she says, around line 61, Dear nurse, don't gloat over them yet. You know how welcome the sight of him would be to us all, and especially to me and the son he and I love. Or, but this story can't be true, not the way you tell it. One of the immortals must have killed the suitors, angry at their arrogance and evil deeds. They respected no man, good or bad, so their blind folly has killed them. But Odysseus is lost, lost to us here, gone forever. And Eurycleia, the faithful nurse, Child, how can you say this? Your husband is here at his own fireside, and yet you are sure he will never come home. Always on guard. But here's something else, clear proof. The scar he got from the tusk of that boar, I noticed it when I was washing his feet and wanted to tell you, but he shrewdly clamped his hand on my mouth and wouldn't let me speak. Just come with me and I will stake my life on it. If I am lying, you can torture me to death. Eurycleia puts it all on the line here. But notice how she chides Penelope, always on guard. There is a parallel here. A very clear parallel between Penelope on the one hand and Odysseus on the other. Odysseus, who has been suspicious and skeptical and on guard, who has prevented himself from rushing forward and taking his birthright, going back to his wife, going back to his son, claiming his right as lord of the household. And Penelope, who is also protecting herself. She is always on guard. She is also shrewdly preventing herself from jumping into this situation. In fact, she shrewdly protects herself longer than Odysseus does. Odysseus has overcome the suitors, and yet Penelope is still on guard. 
Still wary, Penelope replied, Dear nurse, it is hard for you to comprehend the ways of the eternal guards, wa gods, wise as you are. Still let us go to my son so that I may see the suitors dead and the man who killed them. And Penelope descended the stairs, her heart in turmoil. Should she hold back and question her husband? Or should she go up to him, embrace him, and kiss his hands and head? She entered the hall, crossing the stone threshold, and sat opposite Odysseus in the firelight beside the farther wall. He sat by a column, looking down, waiting to see if his incomparable wife would say anything to him when she saw him. She sat a long time in silence, wondering. She would look at his face and see her husband, but then fail to know him in his dirty rags. Notice Penelope believes it at this point. Her heart in turmoil, should she hold back and question her husband? She believes it is in fact Odysseus, but she's still got her suspicions. She is still uncertain. And again, this is warranted. Remember Alcmene, the wife of, uh, the mother of Heracles, how Zeus came to her in the guise of her husband in order to, to, uh, conceive Heracles. Um, this Penelope entertains that possibility. No mortal could kill all those suitors. It must be a god. Maybe it's just someone disguised as Odysseus. This possibility hangs over her, and it hangs over Odysseus too. Notice the silence is two ways here. She sat a long time in silence, and Odysseus does not respond. Telemachus is the one who breaks the silence. Mother, how can you be so hard holding back like that? Why don't you sit next to father and talk to him, ask him things? No other woman would have the heart to stand off from her husband who has come back after 20 hard years to his country and home, but your heart is always colder than stone. And Penelope cautious as ever, my child, I am lost in wonder and unable to speak or ask a question or look him in the eyes. If he really is Odysseus come home, the two of us will be sure of each other, very sure. There are secrets between us no one else knows. And Odysseus knows what's up. He says, Telemachus, let your mother test me in our hall. She will soon see more clearly. Now, because I am dirty and wearing rags, she is not ready to acknowledge who I am. But you and I have to devise a plan. When someone kills just one man, even a man who has few to avenge him, he goes into exile, leaving country and kin. Well, we have killed a city of young men, the flower of Ithaca. Think about that. So while Penelope is figuring out what she wants to do, and she ultimately will test Odysseus. Odysseus comes up with yet another disguise. Remember, they just killed a hundred people. And this is a big deal. Um, like, in the same way that we talked about with the Iliad, how, you know, it stops being about Helen after a certain point. Now Achilles wants to kill Hector not because he wants to get Helen back, but because Hector killed Patroclus, because Patroclus killed Sarpedon, because Sarpedon killed, and so on and so forth. There's the threat of vengeance now. Odysseus has literally stood around and killed a hundred people, Ithaca's finest. All of his liege lords are going to be pissed. They're all going to gang up and attack his home. Um, it's only proper. Like, this is the right thing to do in the Greek society, to avenge the people who have fallen. It would be dishonorable for them not to do this. So Odysseus, once again, has to come up with a plan, a strategy. His strategy is to bathe yourselves and put on clean tunics and tell the women to choose their clothes well, then have the singer pick up his lyre and lead everyone in a lively dance tune, loud and clear. Anyone who hears the sound, a passerby or neighbor, will think it's a wedding, and so word of the suitor's killing won't spread down through the town before we can reach our woodland farm. Once there, we'll see what kind of luck the Olympian gives us. 
The plan is we're going to have singing and dancing and we're going to make like it's a wedding. Which is actually really ingenious. Remember, the whole plan today was Penelope is going to set out the bow, the suitors are going to take shots trying to get the arrow through the axe heads. If any of them succeed, they get to marry Penelope. Presumably one of them succeeded and now there's a wedding and they're having celebrations and it's a big deal and no wonder there's all this noise coming from the household. No wonder it must be this really big celebration. So they do that. They like... They have the men and women bathe and dress up. They play the lyre. They put. They do the song. And finally, people outside are like, well, someone has finally married the queen. Um, at long last, one of the suitors has gained Penelope's hand. Hooray! Um, but in fact, that's not what's happening. Od- Odysseus manages to disguise his whole household here to protect his homecoming. In the same way that he's been disguising himself since day one. Um, in the same way that Athena has been disguising herself at every possible opportunity. Um, like, now we have the biggest disguise of all. The disguise that, like, prevents Odysseus from being attacked because of the dead suitors. Um, like, the word will get out. We'll talk about that a little bit later in Book 24, um, when rumor flies on its wings. But anyway, we'll get there. Um, in the meantime, Odysseus has his bath. And he comes out and, like, Athena puts special strength and beauty on him so he looks, like, even more awesome than usual. And at this point, Penelope doesn't even have, like, the rags to sort of cloud her judgment here. This is very clearly Odysseus. Um, But even then, she isn't willing to commit yet. Penelope, cautious and wary, this is around line 179, you're a mysterious man. I am not being proud or scornful, nor am I bewildered, not at all. I know very well what you looked like when you left Ithaca on your long-oared ship. Nurse, bring the bed out from the master bedroom, the bedstead he made himself, and spread it for him with fleeces and blankets and silky coverlets. She was testing her husband. And Odysseus absolutely, like, completes the test, succeeds. In some sense, he fails. Like, he doesn't realize that he's being tested. He gets, like, really upset. By God, woman, now you've cut deep. Who moved my bed? It would be hard for anyone, no matter how skilled, to move it. A god could come down and move it easily. But not a man alive, however young and strong, could ever pry it up. There's something telling about how that bed's built, and no one else built it but me. There was an olive tree growing on the site, long-leaved and full, its its trunk thick as a post. I built my bedroom around that tree. And when I had finished the masonry walls and done the roofing and set in the jointed, close-fitted doors, I lopped off all the olive's branches, trimmed the trunk from the root on up, and rounded it intrude it with an adze until I had myself a bedpost. I bored it with an auger, and starting from this I framed up the whole bed, inlaying it with gold and silver and ivory and stretching across it oxhide thongs dyed purple. So there's our secret. But I do not know, woman, whether my bed is still firmly in place or if some other man has cut through the olive's trunk. And at this Penelope finally lets go. As important as the shield was in the Iliad, that big shield that represented like all of greek life and that scholars have debated for you know years this is as important to the odyssey the bed is as thematically significant as the shield was and it ties literally all of the themes together notice penelope's test here is she tells Eurycleia to bring the bed out And Odysseus knows the bed can't be brought out. 
The reason is the bed is literally part of the part of the house. Like Odysseus started building his house, not the way you usually would with like architectural plans and so on and so forth. He started by building his bedroom around an olive tree. And the olive tree, he literally carved into a bedpost. The bed is literally rooted in the ground because the tree is presumably still growing. Like, this is not just a bed in the way that, like, you can pick up and pack your bed when you go to college or when you get your first apartment or whatever by, like, moving the bed frame around. No, we're talking about, like, this bed is a part of the earth. It is as grounded, as rooted in the world as Odysseus's walls and house, if not more so. It is so central, so fundamental to Odysseus's kingdom that the prospect of moving the bed is frankly impossible. This is the test. Odysseus knows the bed cannot be moved. The bed is part of the earth. But notice too the significance of this symbol. The bed is the cornerstone of Penelope and Odysseus's relationship. Notice that nobody else has ever seen the bed, much less been in it. That's important. This is their marriage bed. It is not some place that anyone else has access to. There's literally one servant who goes in that bedroom besides Odysseus and Penelope, and that's it. Like, even Eurycleia has not been in the bedroom. It is news to Eurycleia that the bed is carved out of a tree. Like, no one else in the entire household knows about this except Odysseus and Penelope. It is their secret. That and the one servant. But even more significantly... Notice the symbolism of this bed. It's rooted. This is what Odysseus has been coming home to. It is at the very center, the actual physical and metaphorical center of Odysseus's home, the place he's been trying to get to, the reason why he turned down Calypso's promises of immortality and, you know, Circe's promises of hospitality and all of the kingdoms and all of the lands and all of the opportunities that he had to just forget about home. This is why he was not paying attention to the Lotus Eaters, why he insisted on the crew tying him to the mast when he passed the sirens. This is what he's been fighting for and now he is here. And notice how Penelope he tests him with it bring the bed out and Odysseus's response is you better not bring that bed out who the hell has been cutting up my bed who the hell has been in my bedroom who the hell has removed the bed from the place where I planted it from the place where it is rooted because that means that somebody has been sleeping with Penelope that would mean that somebody has cut apart the bedroom has cut down the tree that was the cornerstone of Odysseus's house. Someone has violated his household on a profound level. This bed is the place, the mark, the center, the symbol of Odysseus's home. For the bed to be movable, implies that Odysseus's home has been violated. For the bed to be transferable, to be able to be inhabited by the suitors, would indicate that Penelope has long since given up on Odysseus. Odysseus is mortified at this prospect. Penelope uses this test, not just to test Odysseus, but to also challenge Odysseus. Odysseus sees this as a reverse test in a way. 
This, the same way that Penelope tests Odysseus is the way that Odysseus sees Penelope as possibly failing that test. You can move the bed now? Then that means that you have not kept my home for me. So notice this theme of memory tying into this theme of home. The bed is both a memory that both of them share, but it is also the cornerstone of their home together. It is what makes them them. It is as much a part of their identity as that scar we talked about last time. How that is connected to all of Odysseus's childhood, his own becoming a man, just as Telemachus is becoming a man now. But this is also in a symbol of Odysseus's manhood. This is his proper role. The bed is his domain, his realm. No one else belongs there. This is as foundational to who Odysseus is as the scar, as his bow, as his prowess in combat, as his ships. Odysseus is his bed. The bed is everything that Odysseus has earned, is to his household and to the countryside around him. It is very much more the throne of Ithaca than a throne of Ithaca could ever be. Whoever occupies that bed runs the show. And notice, too, that's also tied up with his responsibility, responsibilities as a host, his responsibilities to be hospitable to his, his lords and to guests. It's bound up with his travels, the fact that he has traveled all this way to come back to this bed, to come back to Penelope's side, to reclaim his state as Penelope's husband. All of this is codified here. And it's also a trick. It's a disguise. Penelope puts it on. Penelope pretends like the bed can be moved to see if Odysseus is still faithful to her, to see if it's still Odysseus at all. And of course, it is Odysseus. And he is offended, and he is upset, and all of them pass the test. But more than that, Odysseus even knows that it's Penelope testing him, or at least that's the suspicion. So, they go back to bed. Like, notice that's how this concludes. Now, once Penelope and Odysseus have made this peace, they go back to the bed, where, you know, he's finally reached, but notice, too, this is only temporary. Odysseus stresses, line 255, We have not yet come to the end of our trials. There is still a long, hard task for me to complete, as the spirit of Tiresias foretold to me on the day I went down to the house of Hades to ask him about my companion's return and my own. But come to bed now, and we'll close our eyes in the pleasure of sleep. And just like in the Iliad, there's that one night when like Priam comes to Achilles and everything kind of calms down and everybody's asleep. So we get one night here. And this night is also really special. If anything, it's more special. Um, so Penelope answers, your bed is ready for you. Let's go to bed. And while they do in fact have sex, which you would expect, you know, long time co coming home, we have line 306, after Odysseus and Penelope had made sweet love they took turns telling stories to each other. See, here's that other theme, the storytelling, tying back to memory, tying back to Odysseus playing as a bard. We have Odysseus telling Penelope the story. Now, there are three things that they do, like once the bed is actually, you know, once Odysseus passes the test, once they're finally reunited. First, they weep. So again, we have grief. 
Line 246, so welcome a sight was her husband to her, she would not loosen her white arms from his neck, and rose-fingered dawn would have risen on their weeping had not Athena stepped in and held back the long night at the end of its course, and stopped gold-stitched dawn at ocean shores. Notice Athena lengthens the night. She makes it longer than 12 hours, so they can weep and do their sleeping together, and so they can tell their stories, and so they can actually sleep. So they weep for hours, reunited at last. And then they tell they have sex, and then they ha tell stories to each other. Penelope tells Odysseus about all the travail she's had while trying to keep the suitors off. Odysseus tells her the whole story that we got earlier with when he was in the uh, Hall of the Phaeacians, about Scylla and Charybdis, about Circe, about Calypso, about all of these people. And Penelope is happy to listen. If anything, notice that the stress is on the storytelling, not on the sleeping together. Like, as much as there is this consummation and, like, obviously, you know, I'm sure you've heard the stories, soldiers gone at war for long periods of time, come back home, and yeah, there is a lot of sex happening, that's how we get baby boomers. But nonetheless, the stress here is on the stories. They're exchanging memories. They're filling in the gaps. They're trying to sort of undo the 20 years that have transpired that they've been separated from each other. Penelope and Odysseus have missed a lot of each other's lives. This is how they fix that. This is the closest they can get to repairing it. And the text emphasizes the storytelling more than the sex. That is the more proper responsibility of Odysseus. That is the greater unification of the two. That is the more intimate act because that brings both of them up to speed on each other's lives. That reasserts that they are together. It brings Odysseus home and brings Penelope home as well. It fixes it as much as it could be fixed. And then finally they sleep. And Athena waits quite a while until they've properly gotten their sleep and then she lets dawn happen and Odysseus wakes up. And there's something kind of really sad about this. Because this is it. Like, Odysseus has plans starting in the morning. He's going to go and he's going to raid a couple islands and he's going to replenish their stocks of cattle and sheep. He's going to talk to Laertes and get that whole thing dealt with. He's probably going to have to fight with all the other people on Ithaca. And that's let alone the mission that Tiresias gave him with the whole, like, travel until people don't know what an oar is thing. The fact of the matter is this is it. Like, this is the one night that they get together. And it's a long night, admittedly, Athena helps. But tomorrow, in the morning, Odysseus has to get back up, and he has to go away again. This is all they get. This moment home is the last time that Odysseus will be home. Like, she'll probably come back from raids, maybe he'll be able to stay the night then, but this is... This is unique. This is the moment they have been waiting for, that they have been working their way up to. This is actually the climax of the story. More than the suitor murder, which I know that we enjoyed the suitor murder much better. It was way cooler seeing, you know, Antinous get shot through the throat and Melanthius get hogtied and tortured and so on. I'm sure the Greeks are rooting for that too. But really, as far as the themes are concerned, as far as the emotion of this story is concerned, this is it. This is the climax. This is where we finally see Odysseus get what he wants to get back with Penelope, to return home, to reestablish himself as Lord of Ithaca, 
to return to the bed that he carved when he built his house. To return to the tree that started this whole story off. Now, book 24, Odysseus goes to see Laertes. Um, we also finally get like a fairly surprising conclusion to this whole business of the possibility of vengeance on behalf of the suitors. You'll notice that Odysseus like is having his conversation with Laertes and you know all the various suitors families come up and they're like dude you killed all of our suitors and now we're really upset we're gonna kill you and like they start up and they're getting ready to fight and Odysseus like kills one of their guys and Athena just shows up and is like all right that's enough lay down your arms now and go your ways with no more bloodshed that's it like total anti-climax as far as the vengeance is concerned um as for odysseus's conversation with laertes you'll notice there's something kind of reversing about this in the same way that the iliad was all about rage and then finally achilles gives up his rage and gives the body of hector back to priam like in a profound way achilles stops being mad even more than he stopped being mad at agamemnon earlier so we get a change here. Notice Odysseus plays the same game that he's been playing this whole time when he goes to visit his dad. He shows up in Laertes' little hut. He's got this disguise all ready to go. He's like, well, Laertes, I entertained your son Odysseus. He was, it was really great. I really like that guy. And Laertes breaks into tears. Like he takes ashes and spreads them on his head. He is just totally upset. The plan here is that Odysseus is going to test his father the same way that he tested Penelope, the same way that he tested his household. But Odysseus can't do it. Like, this is the first time we've seen Odysseus actually break character. Notice line 325, book 24. A black mist of pain shrouded Laertes. He scooped up fistfuls of shimmering dust and groaned as he poured it upon his gray head. This wrung Odysseus's heart, and bitter longing struck his nostrils as he watched his father. With a bound, he embraced him, kissed him, and said, I'm the one you miss, father, right here, back in my homeland after 20 years. But don't cry now. Hold back your tears. Odysseus can't keep up the disguise in part because he doesn't need to anymore. He knows Laertes is faithful. It's obvious. Like, when he walked into the room, it was obvious. He has been assured over and over by his mother, by other people, by Athena, Laertes has been faithful. And Odysseus stops being guarded. He stops being paranoid. He actually feels confident, comfortable. And he brings Laertes home. Everything goes right. So once again, we get that flip. But I also want to stress the end of this. Notice, again, like after bringing Laertes home, they get attacked by all the suitors' families who want vengeance, and Athena puts an immediate stop to it. Like, all the fighting over, enough, like, enough bloodshed, we're done. But notice how this book actually ends. Athena... And they turned pale with fear. The weapons dropped from their trembling hands and fell to the ground as the goddess's voice sent shockwaves through them. They turned back toward the city and ran for their lives. With a roar, the great long-suffering Odysseus gathered himself and swept after them like a soaring raptor. At that moment, Zeus, son of Cronus, hurled down a flaming thunderbolt that landed at the feet of his allied daughter who said, Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, cunning Odysseus, restrain yourself. End this quarrel and cease from fighting lest broad-browed Zeus frown upon you. 
Notice Odysseus is about to take vengeance. He can win this fight. He knows he can win this fight. He's going to go and kill a bunch of people. Who cares how many people he has to avenge himself on? And Athena is like, no, we're done now. Remember, you're done. You're supposedly changed. It's time to rest. She enforces it. Thus Athena, the man obeyed and was glad, and the goddess made both sides swear binding oaths. Pallas Athena, daughter of the storm cloud, who looked like Mentor and spoke with his voice. Notice the last chapter of the Odyssey, the last passage of the Odyssey, isn't about Odysseus at all, it's about Athena. Athena who looked like Mentor. Athena who has trained Odysseus. I'm not entirely sure how to read into this one. Like, as important as, you know, the ending of the Iliad stress, like, Hector is this key character, he is the main character of the Iliad, like, he is the greatest hero. Here, it's more ambiguous. I suspect that the as much as the Odyssey is about Odysseus, as much as he is the hero, I suspect that actually this is very much an epic devoted to and in worship of Athena, first and foremost. Um, and that she, as mentor especially, indicates that the people listening to this, the takeaway, the big message at the end of the Odyssey, as valuable as it is on the, our themes of like hospitality and you know homecoming and travel and so on, I think at the end of the day, this is actually very much a poem dedicated to talking about how Athena is the best of the gods, how she is the one who is the one who cares for mortals the most. The focus is squarely on her at the end of this poem, even more than it is on Odysseus. Odysseus screws up at the end of the poem. He's going to like cause more bloodshed and like flaunt Zeus and probably get himself totally screwed over again and the gods will be mad at him and then it'll take another giant journey for him to be able to fix things. Odysseus is about to wreck his life even more than it needed to be and Athena stops him. Athena is the one who protects him, who prevents this from happening. Athena is the one you should pray to when you are in need and she should be your mentor. You should aspire to be like her. And when you think about it, when you think of all of the gods and goddesses, is there a god or goddess more suited to being a role model than Athena? I mean, I'll talk about Hephaestus until I'm blue in the face, but Hephaestus is also kind of a joke to the Greeks. Like, as much as he is a really skilled craftsman, he is also not, like, terribly smart or shrewd or clever. Like, he's got problems. But Athena, Athena is clever. She is wise she encourages us to be better people. Being like Athena is being the best version of yourself in the same way that Odysseus should be following Athena's guidance more closely. So for all of you who have been spending this class talking about how much the Greeks are misogynists and do not respect women and so on and so forth, I propose to you this. Based on the characters we've seen in the Odyssey, on Penelope, on Calypso, on Athena... I suspect that Homer actually has profound respect for women. He doesn't, like, raise them out of their position. He doesn't depict them outside of their position. But I suspect, I suggest, and again, you can argue against me, and if you're already working on your paper, feel free to do that. 
I suspect that Homer is trying to elevate women, the goddesses and the actual mortals in this book. Penelope is every bit as heroic as Odysseus. Calypso recognizes there is a double standard and argues that there is a double standard. At the end of the day, it's Athena who is the champion here. She is the worthiest of the gods in a way. But again, just my opinion. You could definitely make an argument either way. So I hope you've enjoyed the Odyssey. Uh, for my next lecture, we'll be reading Oedipus Rex. Um, if you have any questions about the Odyssey, if you want to talk about it more, if there's stuff that I glossed over, feel free to confront me in the Q&A about it. I would love to talk about more of the details that I didn't get to today. I've already gone over long yet again. Alas, oh well. Um, and I'll talk to you soon.